this year it so happens that we are marking the 100th anniversary of the foundation of the Weimar Republic. So what I want to do this evening is to talk about the Weimar Republic and ask what lessons it's got for us today because we badly need to learn some lessons from history at the moment. Democracy is in trouble all over the world. The optimism that swept across the globe in the wake of the collapse of communism in 1989-90 has now vanished, I think it's fair to say. Some of you may remember that the American political scientist Francis Fukuyama predicted at the time that liberal democracy would triumph and history would come to an end. This seemed for a short time to be justified as one country after another embraced the principles of democratic freedom and the rule of law. If you look at the Economist Intelligence Unit's World Democracy Index for 2018, for example, half the world states, roughly speaking, are classified as democracies. And this is a big rise since the middle of the 20th century. But the trend's now gone into reverse. The Democracy Index showed that 89 countries had been downgraded since the previous year, three times more than those that had been upgraded. In the last decade or so, strongmen have emerged in a variety of countries. In Viktor Orban in Hungary, in Kaczynski in Poland, Duterte in the Philippines, Maduro in Venezuela. And they've been muzzling the media or turning them into organs of their own propaganda. They've been subjecting a formerly independent judiciary to the state. In Turkey, Erdogan has arrested and imprisoned thousands of people, especially academics who've dared to criticize him. In Istanbul, he's caused elections to be annulled because they produced results that he didn't like. In the United States of America, President Trump has criticized the independent American judiciary and the free American press. He's encouraged his supporters to use violence against his critics. He's begun to bypass Congress with a series of emergency decrees that allow him to do a great deal of what he can't do through Congress. In Britain, the rise of the Brexit party with his explicit attack on representative democracy, its declaration that our political system is finished, has profited from widespread disillusion with Parliament. Everywhere, the far right is rejecting the consensus of the world's scientists about man-made global warming, encouraging conspiracy theories, spurning the advice of experts. Dictators and strongmen are almost invariably corrupt. They steal taxpayers' money in order to enrich themselves. They install their families in key offices of state. They put incompetent people in charge instead of competent ones. They arrest, torture, and imprison citizens with impunity. They encourage nationalism and racism at home. They pursue dangerous and risky policies abroad without fear of being brought to account. They demonize disfranchise and disempower whole groups of the population, whether it's Jews, gypsies, Latinos, people with dark skin, or above all, immigrants of many different kinds. 
And the result of all this is the deepening of social divisions, the spreading of hate, the undermining of the rule of law, and ultimately the impoverishment of the country. So what can the past teach us about the current threat to democracy and how to counter it? Well, the historical paradigm of the collapse of a democracy is Germany's Weimar Republic, known by the town where the constitution was ratified on the 11th of August, 1919. And this year, as I began by saying, we mark the centenary of the Republic's foundation. The Kaiser's authoritarian state, in which governments were appointed by the hereditary ruler, were not responsible to parliament. They could not be ousted by a vote of no confidence, as shown, for example, in a notorious vote of no confidence over Alsace-Lorraine in, in 1913. Kaiser's state was one in which the largest political party, the Social Democratic Party of Germany, was excluded from power. Its activists and officials persecuted by the police in the courts, its representatives ostracized by the state, and its central institutions, such as the army, the Kaisers, uh, were, were more or less uh, independent. Kaiser state was blamed, however, for, by the mass of ordinary Germans for losing the First World War, for causing misery, deprivation and starvation on the home front between 1914 and 1918. And it was overthrown by a largely bloodless revolution in November 1918. The bloodshed came when the forces of counter-revolution began to mobilise against it, prompting its radicalisation. But the actual revolution that overthrew the Kaiser was largely a peaceful one. The Weimar Republic that was established on the 11th of August 1919 was generally dated back to the revolution of the previous November. Its establishment followed the deliberations of a nationally elected constituent assembly. It was widely held to be the most democratic state in the world. Free elections, voting rights for all adults, male and female, a free judiciary, a free press, large measure of local regional autonomy, system of proportional representation that prevented minorities from being excluded from lawmaking bodies. And in the elections to the National Assembly in 1919, the political parties that supported the democracy won an overwhelming majority. What could possibly go wrong? Less than 15 years later, the Republic had disappeared, replaced by the dictatorial rule of Adolf Hitler. A free press had taken over by the Nazi party. All other political parties were dissolved. All independent institutions, apart from the church and the army, were turned into Nazi institutions. Legislatures were transformed into organs of acclamation for the dictator and his policies. Treason laws were introduced that made criticism of Hitler and his rule, even telling jokes about them, punishable by death. Just six years later, the new regime launched a world war that caused the death of an estimated 50 million people, including 6 million Jews deliberately murdered by the Nazis and their helpers. So how did this happen? Can we learn anything from the Republic's fate? It's not surprising that many commentators have pointed to its experience as a lesson for our own times. Martin Kettle, for example, writing The Guardian last month, noted significant 
parallels with Brexit Britain. These included an increasingly polarised political system, left and right refusing to cooperate with one another in a crisis, economic deprivation, growing public distrust of political institutions, the increasing influence of extra-parliamentary politics. In Brexit Britain, as in the Weimar Republic, you noted, and I'm quoting here, large parts of the centre-right are intimidated by and increasingly share many of the prejudices of the far-right, and more than half the public says it will support a strong leader willing to break the rules. As in the Weimar Republic, we've begun to experience political assassination, threats of violence against politicians, and a rise in racism. Weimar, Martin Kettle says, was overwhelmed by a potent narrative of national betrayal and the allure of a strong, autocratic and illiberal alternative form of government rooted in racism and fear of others. There are further parallels that have been noted by commentators. The corrosive political effects of economic crisis, whether it was the Great Depression of the early 30s or the credit crunch and its consequences after 2008. The appeal of nationalism, the nostalgic evocation of a glorious past, whether it was the medieval German Holy Roman Empire or the modern British one. The rise of charismatic populist politicians who mobilised discontent against the system. The weakness of trade unions, the divisions of the left, the weakness of the constitution, the opening constitution gives to politicians who want to wield undemocratic power. For example, in this country, through the use of the royal prerogative as practised since the days of Henry VIII. Distinguished politicians such, such as the former US Secretary of State, Madeleine Albright, echoed by a number of historians, have warned of democracies being overwhelmed by the rise of a new fascism, just as the Weimar Republic was in 1933. Well, are these parallels convincing? Should we be worried that history is repeating itself? Well, on the international scale, certainly you can point to clear signs of the breakup of the post-war order, just as the League of Nations was marginalised and emasculated by the 1930s, giving way to national egotism and protectionist economic policies that wrought economic havoc in a number of different countries. And almost immediately upon entering the White House in 2016, Donald Trump began to launch a series of assaults on the existing global order, an order that had lasted in its essentials since the end of World War II. In 1945 and afterwards, it seemed obvious to the architects of the post-war world that a broad network of international agreements was needed to avoid the nationalist egotism that had so recently plunged the world into the bloodiest and most disastrous conflict in history. Declaring a policy of America first, Trump has either pulled out or threatened to pull out of international agreements, or at the very least launched strong verbal attacks on them, as well as withdrawing from more recent international accords, such as the Paris Agreement on Climate Change, the Iran nuclear deal. A trade war has begun on his initiative between America and China, the world's two 
largest economies that's likely, if it continues and gets worse, to impoverish us all. But a lot of these parallels are deceptive. On the international front, I think, uh, to begin with, the dangers of war are considerably less than they were in the 1930s. So you've got to remember that regimes like those of Hitler and Mussolini glorified war, actively prepared for it, turning, turning everything in their respective countries, from the economy to the education system, into instruments for preparing for war. In fact, far from deterring them, the experience of the First World War from 1914 to 1918 only made them think they could do better, equipped with more determination, more resources, more modern weaponry, more willpower, and a more united country. As it happened, however, they were wrong. A lot of reports by various kinds of agents working secretly in Germany, either in, on behalf of the government or on behalf of oppositional forces through the 1930s, and in Italy too, showed that most of Germans and Italians took a rather different lesson from World War I. Not surprisingly, they didn't want war at all. And the unparalleled destructiveness of World War II proved them right. Above all, coming of nuclear weapons made the prospect of global warfare too disastrous to contemplate. States today don't glorify war or even openly advocate it. The prospect of war might be used by a threat, uh, as a threat, but the military establishment knows its consequences too well to go along with launching one. Glorification of war after 1918, and that's war, not a small local war, but a large war that would go on for years and engulf many different countries. And that was what's glorified by the Nazis in particular, and also by Mussolini in his attempt to create a new Roman Empire, as he saw it in the Mediterranean. And such glorification of war was, at least in part, I think, the consequence of the militarization, the brutalization of society in more than four years of global conflict. In Germany, there's a wave of political assassinations driven by ultra-nationalist hatred and intolerance in the years after the war's end. There has no parallel in Britain today, despite the murder of Joe Cox and threats of violence against MPs. Post-war violence in Germany and Italy, for that matter, not to mention Soviet, uh, Soviet Russia, was on an enormously bigger scale. And in Germany in the 1920s and early 30s, every political party had its organised, armed, uniformed paramilitary wing. The stormtroopers or brown shirts of the Nazis, the Reichs banner for the Social Democrats, the steel helmets for the Nationalists, the Red Front Fighters League for the Communists. And these, these numbered hundreds of thousands of mostly unemployed young men by the early 30s, clashing every day in meetings and on the streets, beating up their opponents, breaking up their assemblies, speeches, marching, marching ceaselessly through the streets. Here you've got a selection of them, some are quite difficult to tell which is which, is which. Uh, but you've got the Nazi stormtroopers, top right, and you've got the communists, top left, you've got the Reichsbanner, bottom left, uh, and again you've got, including a chap with a white beard there, I think that's the, uh, the unfortunate Reichsbanner uh, yet again, which is not the most effective of them. 
level of violence in Germany in the early 30s was absolutely amazing. 1932, 84 Nazis were killed in street clashes with other armed groups. 75 communists were killed in the first six months of the year. The election campaign of June to July that year, there were 105 violent deaths in Prussia alone caused by political conflict. Police counted 461 political riots with 400 injuries and 82 deaths. Between 1929 and 1933, some 50 Reichsbanner men were killed in clashes with communists or Nazis. It wasn't just the Nazis who were uh, unleashing violence on the streets. It was a general phenomenon in Germany in the final years of the Weimar Republic. And this organised violence and, and its glorification by political leaders, I think, is generally unacceptable today, along with the militarisation of society that helped produce it and generate a degree of tolerance for it in the general public. Reactions to, to the First World War were often, as I said, a determination, as it were, to do better next time. Reactions to the massively more destructive Second World War were, by contrast, a much greater determination to avoid a conflict of that kind in the future. And of course, in an internet-connected world such as the one we live in, around-the-clock global news media would be in a state of outrage if that kind of violence happened, the sort that happened in Germany in the early 1930s. In the end, too, the German public in the early 30s was disturbed by the level of public violence. A significant part of the appeal of the Nazis uh, to voters lay in their promise to restore law and order on Germany's streets, even though they'd been as responsible as anyone for the violence in the first place. And then the dictatorships of the 1930s are widely regarded nowadays as some of the most evil regimes in history. Above all, of course, the Nazis. And violence on this scale will be too much of a reminder of what they were like. So, despite the threats of violence against their opponents, we don't see Trump and his like uh, putting hundreds of thousands of stormtroopers onto the streets or Viktor Orban organising a paramilitary movement to beat up his opponents. If an anti-democratic strongman like Turkey's President Erdogan does use violence against his critics, it's through the medium of the state and the coordinated judicial apparatus, not through a private army. And it doesn't involve murdering the thousands of people whom he's arrested. In the last analysis, I think you can also see this turn to uh, arrests on a very large scale as a sign of his growing weakness as increasing numbers of Turkish citizens turn against his rule. The kind of violence used by Hitler in converting his position as Chancellor of a coalition government dominated by conservative nationalists in January 1933 into a fully-fledged dictatorial one-party state by July with up to 200,000 communists and social democrats imprisoned in makeshift concentration camps and brutally treated till they agreed not to take part in political activities after their release. And this is uh, just after the opening of Dachau near Munich uh, where... These are social democratic and communist political activists who've not yet been issued with uniforms being marched in. Over 600 prisoners were murdered by camp guards, stormtroopers and SS men, and that's a relatively conservative estimate in these months of 1933. 
And that kind of uh, thing can't really be repeated today, nor can racially motivated violence, murder, and ultimately genocide of the kind the Nazis carried out. And where this or something similar has happened since World War II, as in Cambodia or Uganda in the late 70s, or Rwanda or the Balkans in the 90s, the international community or a neighboring state has eventually stepped in to oust the regime responsible for it. Politicians who wish to overthrow democracy and establish a dictatorship no longer criticize democratic institutions quite so openly as they did in the 1930s. They usually claim to be Democrats themselves, often appealing to the broader public over the heads of what they describe as an undemocratic political elite, an elite that includes those they designate as enemies of the peoples, for example, judges, whom they see as frustrating the popular will, or the fake news press, whom they falsely accuse of spreading lies about them at the behest of vested interests or sinister, malign background forces. What they don't do, however, is to use violence systematically to achieve their goals. They know that public memory of the 1930s and what followed would make this counterproductive. Would-be dictators in our own time tend not to try and seize power by force. Instead, they at least pay lip service to the constitutional niceties. And here, indeed, there are perhaps some parallels with the Weimar Republic. The Republic's constitution was certainly democratic, but it also contained some of the scenes, seeds for its uh, destruction. These seeds of destruction, these democratic flaws, did not, I think, lie in its system of proportional representation in elections. It's often been said by historians that proportional representation in which you voted for a party, not, not for a constituency, and the party got a number of seats in the legislature proportional to the number of votes it got, so if it got 10% of the votes, it got 10% of the seats. If it got 1% of the vote, it got 1% of the seats. It's often been said that this led to weak and unstable coalition governments, unable to agree on a common policy for combating the depression, for example, convincing voters that what was needed was a strong leader who could sort things out. And it's certainly true that for the duration of the Weimar Republic, there was a succession of 15 different governments, each lasting an average of no more than eight months. Hitler devoted uh, a lot of his own speeches to ridiculing the proliferation of different uh, parties, which he saw as bringing electoral and governmental paralysis to the country. Rather complacently, British and American historians argued that if Germany had had a two-party system on the first-past-the-post electoral law, uh, the Weimar Republic might not have collapsed uh, as uh, uh, the rule of, of one party uh, would have been more likely. And in setting up the constitution, the Federal Republic of Germany in 1949, the one that still uh, obtains in, in Germany, German legislators put in place a provision that no party was to get representation in any legislative assembly if it failed to win more than 5% of the vote in an election, thus cutting down the number of small fringe parties. But in fact, if you look at it more closely, the absence of a two-party system 
was not the product of proportional representation. It was due to long-term structural factors, especially the deep religious, social, regional, historical divisions in the electorate. Unlike other European countries, Germany had uh, a, a rough balance, about 60-40, roughly speaking, between uh, Protestants and, and Catholics. It was a strongly... Uh, divided by society, divided by class, with a huge industrial sector, uh, and very large numbers of workers, uh, landed aristocracy in the north and the, and the east, uh, regional differences between the south and the north, and so on. So, uh, in Bismarck's time already, there was a Protestant conservative party, a right-wing and a left-wing liberal party, a Catholic party, and a working-class party, which from 1918 was split into two, the Social Democrats and the Communists. And uh, in fact, that's one of the reasons, again, when refounding German democracy after 1945, uh, the Catholic Centre Party merged with uh, moderate uh, conservative parties, of a more Protestant bent, to, to create a larger, uh, more unified kind of um, a system and overcome the divisions between uh, founded on religion, this, the Christian Democratic Party, which then held sway in Germany throughout the 50s and well into the 60s. So all governments in Germany would have to be coalitions, whatever the electoral system was. Minor and fringe parties never had a lot of influence. They were seldom in government. The greatest popularity was in the more stable middle period of the Republic. They had no influence on the breakup of the Grand Coalition in 1930, which in retrospect marked the first crucial step in the end of the Republic, a coalition in which the Social Democrats joined with centrist parties to form a government, which then broke up uh, under the pressure of the Depression. And then it's been argued often that ministerial instability made the Republic very ineffective. As soon as a as soon as the minister started doing something, the government fell and another minister came in. So it couldn't really uh, redo very much effectively at all. But in fact, there was some ministerial continuity in, in some of the key areas. Ministries didn't always change hands when one government was succeeded by another. Gustav Stresemann was foreign minister in nine successive cabinets. Heinrich Brown's now largely forgotten, a politician was Labour Minister in 12, and Otto Gessler was Army Minister in 13. And not coincidentally, these were the areas in which the Weimar governments were most consistently successful. Stresemann's foreign policy, which depended on reconciliation with the victors of the First World War and fulfilling the conditions laid down by the Treaty of Versailles in order to be able to uh, bargain uh, then for the restoration of some of Germany's lost, uh, lost privileges. Welfare, Weimar welfare state, again, uh, depended to a large degree on the Labour ministry, on uh, continuity there. Uh, it, this is one of the great welfare states of the world in the mid-1920s. Military policy, uh, admittedly not necessarily an advantage, but the uh, army maintained its independence uh, from politics by having this, uh, the same politician in, in, in the war ministry in charge of military affairs who did more or less what he wanted. 
And then some clever number crunchers have shown that if elections had been based on a one-member constituency first-past-the-post system, as in the UK, Nazi Party would actually have gained more seats in the 1930 and 1932 elections than it did. And then finally, of course, we've seen in the last three years in this country that a first-past-the-post system doesn't necessarily favour two-party politics at all. We now have a multiplicity of parties jockeying for position in this country. Any government formed after the next election is likely to be a coalition government formed of some combination of Conservatives, Labour, Brexit, Liberal Democrats, Welsh, Scottish Nationalists, Irish Democratic Unionists. Not all of them together, of course, uh, but in order to get a majority, let's say, Conservatives might well have to uh, form a coalition with the Brexit party uh, if it succeeds in getting some, uh, some seats, or Labour might need the Scottish Nationalists to form a majority. More important, I think, than proportional representation was Article 48 of the Weimar Constitution, which provided for a directly elected president in office for seven years. Now, both the direct election the same sort that you have, say, in, in, in uh, France or, or America, plus the very long period of office, gave the president an independent legitimacy from that of the legislature. In many ways, in fact, the president's or position of the Weimar Republic was rather like a revamped version of the Kaiser's position with similar powers but a bit more subject to parliamentary control. And in fact, the architects of the Federal Republic of Germany's constitution in 1949 took note of this and stipulated that the president should be elected by the federal parliament and not like the French or American president in a separate popular vote, reducing him or her essentially to the status of a, a mere figurehead. In the Weimar Republic, the president was anything but a figurehead. He could rule by decree in time of emergency. If the Reichstag, the national parliament, objected, he could use Article 25 of the Constitution to dissolve it. The Republic's first president, Social Democrat Friedrich Ebert, who'd come to power in the revolution in 1918, used Article 48 on no fewer than 136 occasions in the violent and unstable early years of the Republic, in ten, including uh, deposing legally elected state governments in Saxony and Thuringia in 1923 because they involved support from the communists and were uh, ex extremely left-wing, or, on the other hand, to approve retrospectively death sentences carried out on communist insurgents in the Ruhr in March 1920. Now, however much he might have defended at the time, Ebert's very free use of the power to rule by decree set a fatal president for the, uh, president for the Weimar Republic. And after Ebert died in 1925, Field Marshal Paul von Hindenburg was elected, a very different character, generally seen, in some ways correctly, I think, as a representative of the old order. The black, white, red flags of the Kaiser's regime flew everywhere on his election in 1925. He didn't really have any real commitment to democracy, 
He was a great war hero of 1914 to 18, regarded as having rescued the country in the victory at the Battle of Tannenberg right at the beginning of the, of the war. Hindenburg, in fact, stuck to the rules quite conscientiously until depression hit Germany in 1929. And after this, as the Grand Coalition collapsed uh, and Parliament began to lose its effectiveness, he became convinced that a conservative dictatorship in his name was the only way out of Weimar's crisis. It used to be thought, including by me, that Hindenburg was uh, too old, perhaps a little bit senile, and rather ineffective. But this recent work on him has, I think, uh, revised the conventional image of him. He propagated his own public image, for example, as an integrative figure. He worked towards the overthrow of democracy and the political stalemate inviting mounting violence of the early 30s. <coughs> he hoped <coughs> excuse me, that something like the Kaiser's regime could be restored, if not the Kaiser himself. Nobody really seemed to have wanted the II. Since the political parties were unable to agree on how to combat the depression, or indeed anything else, government of the moderate conservative uh, Heinrich Brüning, appointed by Hindenburg in 1930, after the Grand Coalition's collapse, was forced to rule by emergency decree through Hindenburg if it was to get any legislation passed at all. The only majorities were negative majorities. From 1930 onwards, as masses of uniformed Nazi and communist deputies in the Reichstag disrupted every parliamentary session by shouting and chanting at each other, the Reichstag met on fewer and fewer occasions. A hundred days a year, on average, from 1920 to 30, only 24 days in total between March 1930 and July 1932, and only three days altogether between July 1932 and February 1933. In other words, the legislature ceased to function. This concentrated effective power in the hands of a few men around the president, including the chancellor, now appointed by Hindenburg, and his advisers. Bruning and his successors, Papen and Schleicher, lacked any electoral support. Their voters had decamped to the Nazis. History of the months after July 1932, when Hitler's party became the largest by some distance in the Reichstag, is largely the history of the search for the clique around Hindenburg for a way to gain the appearance of popular mass support by co-opting the Nazis into their government with the aim of legitimizing an attempt to roll back the tide of democracy and re restore the authoritarian system of the Kaiser's days. And here you can see two contemporary cartoons which illustrate that, that point. There's Hindenburg and, uh, and Hitler uh, dressed as, as somewhat implausibly as Romans of old, uh, saying that um, it's a heaven-sent opportunity uh, to uh, set up a dictatorship. And on the right, you have Hindenburg and Papen uh, hosting, hoisting Hitler uh, into, into power. And that's what happened on the 30th of January, 1933, uh, when Hindenburg appointed Hitler as head of a coalition government. Now, a coalition government in which the Nazis are a small minority, there's only four of them, uh, in ministries. Conservative nationalists held all the other ministries. And they despised Hitler as an amateur, an outsider. Uh, the aristocratic Papen, who was made vice-chancellor, uh, declared to a friend 
Within two months, we will have pushed Hitler so far into a corner that he'll squeak. Only one of the most disastrously wrong predictions ever made in history. So it seems to me the one lesson we can learn from this is uh, that it's, it's vital for a democracy uh, to assert the powers of parliament, parliamentary sovereignty, if you like to put it that way. The ability of a government or a head of state to rule by emergency decree can be fatal to democracy. It already becomes so common under Ebert and then under Bruning, Papen and Schleicher that nobody at first thought Hitler was doing anything different when he used Hindenburg's powers of decree to suspend civil liberties after the Reichstag was burnt down by a lone, somewhat deranged Dutch anarcho-syndicalist, Marinus von der Lubbe, on the 27th, 28th of February, 1933. And this, this so-called Reichstag fire decree was then renewed on a regular basis all the way up to the collapse of the Third uh, Reich in 1945, and nobody, else, nobody was able to do anything, anything about it. This is from the New York Times reporting, reporting the event. <coughs> so the lesson seems to be that to prevent the collapse of representative democracy, Parliament has to stop its power being eroded. And in Britain today, as in the final years of the Weimar Republic, the legislature is more or less paralysed, at least on the most important issue of uh, our time, as the only majorities on Brexit votes are negative ones. It's a distinct possibility that if the next Prime Minister, whoever it might be, and we'll find out uh, fairly soon, is determined to push through a no-deal Brexit, knowing beforehand it will be voted down if it was presented to Parliament, he could simply ensure that Parliament doesn't meet in the second half of October when the deadline falls and is not able to secure an extension from the EU, thus allowing no de deal to happen by default. And if this happens, Britain's parliamentary system would truly be in trouble. Already, I think, the Fixed-Term Parliaments Act passed at the beginning of the Cameron-Clegg coalition to serious inroad into the freedom of parliaments to exercise control over the executive but actually bypassing it, refusing it to, to uh, uh, have a say on a no-deal Brexit, I think would be very serious indeed. Now, in Germany in the early 1930s, in the Weimar Republic, the Reichstag was paralysed because of the electoral success of the explicitly anti-parliamentary Nazis and communists, not because there was a multiplicity of parties and factions, each cancelling the other out. But it's important to remember that the most the Nazis ever got in a free election was 37.4% of the vote. Even in the semi-free elections of March 1933, so over a month after he'd, uh, or two months after he'd, um, how about January 30th, 5th of March, so several weeks after Hitler had become chancellor, he'd been in power long enough to ensure that rival parties weren't allowed to campaign, for example. But even then, the Nazis only managed 44%. They were only able to form a majority again with the help of the conservative nationalist coalition parties, who won 8%. As in the United States, where President Trump, Trump only survives because the Republican Party controls the Senate, so too in Weimar Germany, a demagogue has needed the support of at least one of the mainstream political parties. That's what happened in 1933 with the support of the mainstream nationalist conservatives. 
In the UK as well, the rise of Nigel Farage, another politician who operates essentially outside the parliamentary system and has declared his intention of changing it, has pushed the Conservative Party to the right, as the Nazis did the, uh, did the um, uh, Conservative Nationalists. And uh, not only over Brexit, but also other issues like the privatisation of the National Health Service. Remains to be seen whether the Brexit Party wins enough seats in the next election, whenever that takes place, to make it indispensable as a coalition partner if the Conservatives are to form a government. Just as likely, given the splitting of the Conservative vote by the Brexit Party, is a qualified victory by the Labour Party, which would then require the Scottish Nationalists as coalition partners if it was to form a government, a move that would have its own dramatic consequences for the integrity of the United Kingdom. You've got the latest Westminster voting intentions, and you can see we now have, uh, at the very least, a four, possibly even a five-party system with the first, uh, the first four on roughly level, level pegging, the Brexit party slightly ahead. Nevertheless, I think, although this is a dramatic change from what we've been used to for decades with basically a two-party system, it's a long way from the kind of meltdown of democratic institutions that happened in Weimar, Germany. Parliamentary and judicial institutions in the UK, I hope, I believe, are more robust. Democratic political culture, for all its weaknesses, is much more firmly rooted than in Weimar, Germany, where democracy was something rather new uh, in 1918. What one might broadly call the left in this country is deeply divided, both between Labour, Liberal Democrats and Greens, also within the Labour Party, between Jeremy Corbyn's hard left and what it likes to call dismissively the Blairites. But such divisions were far deeper in the Weimar Republic. Anyone who laments the fact that the Communists and the Social Democrats who between them actually won more votes than the Nazis in the elections of November 1932 were unable to unite to stop Hitler coming to power needs, I think, to recall that the communists, too, were enemies of democracy. They decried the democratic institutions of the republic as mere fig leaves for late monopoly capitalist domination and exploitation of the working class. They called for them to be swept away by the creation of a Soviet Germany, and they actually used that phrase along the lines of Stalin's Soviet Union. Here's the KPD. Uh, that's the, in, in the Weimar Republic elections, you voted for a party list. So in this election, it was number three. It says, end, end, uh, end, of, end this system, bring an end to this system. Uh, and the system was also the word that the Nazis used for the Weimar Republic's democracy. And on the right there, you've got vote for communists, list four. They changed the number of every election. So uh, you didn't have, uh, and no party had an advantage by, by being top uh, list one or list two. Lenin shows you the way. Join the Communist Party. Uh, read the Communist Press. So, uh, and what had happened in Soviet Russia? Uh, well, of course, uh, mass arrests, imprisonment of moderate socialists, liberals, conservatives, expropriation, uh, mass murders during the Civil War. And quite apart from the fact that Stalin was instructing his German comrades to direct the fire, their fire against the Social Democrats because they were taking away working class votes, claiming that the workers being betrayed by the SPD, so you've got to vote communist. Uh, there's also a legacy of bitterness from the immediate post-war months, the beginning of the Weimar Republic, 
when the troops of the Social Democratic government had murdered the communist leaders Karl Liebknecht and Rosa Luxemburg. Now, the early 21st century left, for example, is by and large committed to parliamentary democracy, which at least opens up the possibility of some kind of coalition should its parties secure a parliamentary majority in the next election. But in the Weimar Republic, uh, the fact that the Social Democrats were committed to parliamentary democracy and the uh, communists were, were committed to destroying it, I think, prevented any kind of, any kind of union. Well, what provides the essential backdrop to the present crisis, of course, is the economic downturn that followed the banking crisis and credit crunch of 2008-9. And here's another parallel to Germany in the early 30s. Hitler didn't win votes for his, parties, for his party just because of his charisma or his genius. Context was all. In the Reichstag elections of 1928, the Nazis won less than 3% of the vote, 3%, absolute fringe party, despite the fact that Hitler was campaigning. Four years later, they were the largest party. It's clear enough that without the depression, they wouldn't have won such a huge number of votes. Businesses crashed as a result of American banks withdrawing their loans in the wake of the Wall Street crash in 1929. Companies went bust. 35% of the workforce lost their jobs. Banks had to be rescued by the government. Uh, and uh, it wasn't just the manual labouring classes who suffered. It was the middle classes as well. For example, mass dismissals in the civil service even. German agriculture, from Juncker estates to small peasant farms, had plunged even further into a crisis that had already become, begun to have its effect uh, well before 1929. And here you have a... Uh, uh, an appeal, a classic poster by the Nazis, our last hope, uh, looking at the mass of downtrodden, unemployed workers, both middle class wearing a kind of Homburg hat and working class wearing a, uh, a working class cap. But the link between the economic and the political wasn't entirely straightforward in the Weimar Republic because it was the communists above all, not the Nazis, who gathered the votes of the unemployed. And in fact, their representation in the Reichstag carried on growing while that of the Nazis was beginning to fall. They got to 100 seats in November 1932. While the Nazis did succeed in garnering support from all social groups, including uh, a proportion of the unemployed, they won above all disproportionate uh, number of votes from the middle classes. This caused the almost complete collapse of the liberal and conservative parties and the splinter groups that had emerged in the wake of the inflation of 1923. And the inflation of 1923 incidentally had uh, divided the middle classes, hence you've got the emergence of these splinter groups, but it didn't destroy the republic. In the mid-1920s, there was an economic recovery which put the inflation behind it. It was the depression that really uh, caused the problem. And these people who were deserted the liberal parties, both right and left, and deserted the nationalist parties. These are the people who are disillusioned with the Republic's failure in the economy, culminating the Depression, but also terrified of the seemingly unstoppable rise of communism in Germany. They knew what had happened to what the communists called the bourgeoisie in Russia. Dispossession, imprisonment, murder. They most certainly didn't want that to happen in Germany as well. So here you have the election results. See the meteoric rise of the 
Nazi Party, from almost nothing in May 1928 to uh, its peak in July 1932. Uh, and the, uh, the black line towards the right means that after then elections are not uh, entirely free, to put it mildly. Uh, there you have the Catholic Centre Party more or less holding its own, uh, sharp decline in the Social Democrats, when some of whom went to communists, some of whom went to the Nazis, uh, and the, uh, the green and yellow parties, uh, again, those are kind of middling parties, and the black as well, going down to July 1932, all uh, pretty well collapsing. Hitler won votes because his movement was young, vigorous, promised to rescue the country from its crisis, pledged to make Germany great again, if I can use that phrase, after the humiliations of the loss of the First World War and the Treaty of Versailles. His programme was short on specifics, but strong on vague but attractive slogans. Uh, Labour, freedom, bread, vote for National Socialists. Wake up Germany, or Germany is waking up, it's kind of uh, ambiguous. Uh, again, vote for the National, National Socialists. Let's put Germany back to work. Let's protect the German mother, and so on. Voters weren't on the whole, and I think Martin Kettle is wrong here, won by racism and anti-Semitism. In fact, in fact, the Nazis played down these aspects of their propaganda in the elections of the early 30s because in 1928 they found they didn't work. They were won on the appeal to nationalism. And in the end, they never managed to win much more than a third of the vote, even at their peak, 37.4%. And in this fact lay a major reason why the Nazis needed the unrestrained application of brute force against their opponents to turn a democracy into dictatorship. The more violence on the streets there was, in addition to this, the more potential power accrued to the army. It might have been restricted in many ways by the terms of the 1919 peace settlement, limiting its members to its numbers to 100,000, for example, banning uh, tanks and various other heavy uh, weapons. Uh, but the army still far outgunned the paramilitary uh, movements and outmatched them in terms of discipline and organisation. During the entirety of the Republic, the army, as I mentioned, retained its independence from political control. In the early 30s, it became a key power broker. The more violence there was, the more crucial its position became. It used its influence over Hindenburg, hero of the First World War, a military man all his life coupled with a not very subtle hint that it was prepared to launch a civil war if need be to help lever Hitler into office. And with a few exceptions, I think, modern political systems are generally ensured that the armed forces are subordinated to political control, even in Latin America, where there have been a number of military dictatorships. Not quite so true, I think, in the Middle East and some African countries, uh, but it's certainly true in, in Europe and the United States. And the, the relative absence of political violence on the streets has largely reduced their room for political manoeuvre. There's real, no, not much of a modern parallel uh, here, perhaps. Perhaps more relevant is the phenomenon of culture wars, both then and now. And part of the Weimar Republic's fascination, of course, uh, lies in its vibrant uh, uh, and, and often left-wing political culture. You see this is being celebrated in a number of different ways. Orchestras are putting on programmes of Weimar music, uh, the, the, the Weimar film, Weimar exhibitions and so on. It's the era of modernist cinema, films like Dr Caligari, The Blue Angel, music by avant-garde composers or more popular ones like Kurt Weill, jazz, expressionist art, Bertolt Brecht, uh, the dramatist Alfred Dublin, the 
modernist writer for sexual freedom, celebrated in novels like Christopher Isherwood's Goodbye to Berlin or Hermann Hesse's Steppenwolf. Here you have Otto Dix celebrating this uh, wilder side of Weimar's cultural life. And no wonder it exerts such a hold over our imagination. But Hitler wasn't alone in condemning all of this as what he called degenerate. In fact, he spoke for a large segment of traditional and conservative Germany, particularly beyond the borders of Berlin. The morbid fascination with sex murders, serial killers you can see in Fritz Lang's film, M, uh, the more lurid paintings and drawings of George Grosch, was countered by conservative outrage at Weimar's de facto abolition of the death penalty. Hitler didn't stress family values in his propaganda for nothing. And similar cultural conservatism, I think, helps fuel a good deal of support of populist politics in our own time, whether it's agitation for the return of capital punishment, which tops the list of what voters for Brexit want to return after Britain has left the EU. Yeah, it's surprising, isn't it? But that's a poll, opinion poll of Leave voters. Or the outlawing of abortion in the USA, the attack on LGBT rights and a whole range of countries, including Poland, Hungary, and, and Russia. Now, this is all cultural wars, and part of the culture wars waged by would-be and actual dictators has been the assault on truth, intellectual independence, freedom of expression. And this is certainly the case of the Nazis. Uh, it's been the case of, with authoritarians right across the political uh, spectrum of authoritarian politics. That's why politicians like Erban, uh, Orban and Erdogan have been purging the universities. Bolsonaro in Brazil uh, has cut their funding by a third. Trump in the USA has been undermining climate research in universities and, and elsewhere. Both Nazis and communists brought propaganda to a fine art with the skilled use of new media like radio and cinema, the equivalent in the early 30s of today's social media. We haven't yet found a way of countering the explosion of false information and fake news any more than moderate political parties found a way of countering the, the vigour and extremism and ruthlessness of Nazi propaganda in the early 30s. But in the end, for all the parallels, or perhaps one should call them echoes, we're not reliving the 1930s. What's most striking about the current situation is the popularity of politicians hostile to the existing order, strong men like Kaczynski or Duterte or Bolsonaro, or those like Trump who would like to emulate them don't need violence to achieve their goals. They've been elected into office, and not by masses necessarily disillusioned with democracy itself, but masses disillusioned with what they see as the ineffectiveness of governments or the existing system, or seduced by slogans and promises uh, of a better future. It's only after they've been elected, in the, in, on the whole, that strong men turn to dismantling the very system that brought them to power in the first place. But this too doesn't seem to dent their popularity as they rally public opinion behind them by polemicizing against supposed common enemies like immigrants or drug dealers or foreign powers. The kind of regime they introduce may not lead to world war, but it will, I think, lead to corruption, inefficiency, injustice, and misgovernment. It will turn out to be everyone's disadvantage. Learning lessons from the past is a tricky business. The Weimar Republic stands rightly as a paradigm of a failed democracy. But in the 21st century, democracies mostly fail in different ways. The most important lesson we can learn from democracy's collapse is that its consequences can be devastating and usually are.
Thank you very much.